Well, all righty. Well, come on back. And grab your Bible and... Uh, And uh, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there's some down back there by the agape box. You're welcome to grab a Bible and follow along. Uh, You're not allowed to use your phones. No, that's a joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. You're allowed to use your phones. (laughs) That battle was lost a long time ago, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Hey, I want to tell you something about uh, your generosity and the generosity here at uh, Calvary Chapel, not to lose our blessing. I just want you to know that these things are happening. You obviously have been uh, paying attention to the news, and uh, you uh, here at uh, Calvary Chapel, we've reached out to a, a sister church, a Calvary Chapel in western Ukraine. I think now there's 1.3 to 1.5 million refugees that are pouring out of Ukraine. And so you, you donated to a church in western Ukraine, this body, uh, as they're housing refugees on the way out, feeding them, clothing them, uh, spiritual counseling. And uh, I'm going to put the article uh, up here. You can read about it. Uh, I'll put it on the front table. There's four or five places there. Well, that's one of the places of many that you folks um, uh, support financially and prayerfully around the, around the world. I think uh, you're in uh, Jamaica. You support a mission in Jamaica, Hungary. Boy, I'm going blank. Oh, uh, Indonesia, that's right, thanks. Keep shouting them, let's go. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) What? Oh, and Lebanon as well, refugees in Lebanon. So all around the world, you can look at a a few of them down here. We need to update the board a little bit, uh, but they're down here, and you can uh, get their names and pray for them. Obviously, there's some principles involved. Uh, We've been doing the book of Ezekiel in the Bible College, and Russia is a major player in the end times. And am I saying that this is, uh, you know, the war of Gog and Magog? No, I don't know that. But here's what I do know is that uh, according to the Bible, in the end times, and I believe contemporaneous with or soon thereafter the rapture, a confederation consisting of Russia and Turkey and Iran are going to invade Israel. What's really interesting about all of that is uh, last night, I'm sitting there studying, and I get an update on my phone. I don't know what this means. Uh, don't pretend to know what it means. But the prime minister of Israel was in the Kremlin last night meeting with Putin. Isn't that fascinating? I don't know what was said. I don't know what that was talked about. Of course, I know the subject matter. Uh, but very interesting times indeed. And here's the thing. If you're in Christ, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> But listen, what are we here for? Well, Paul's going to show it to us. Before we're pulled out of here in what we believe is the rapture, then we are to be thinking on eternal things and laying our lives down. What for? What's the purpose? 
for other people, to share with them, to love them, to feed them, to clothe them, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as these things begin to unfold, even through our little body, many would become uh, into the kingdom of God and be safe and safe from the wrath. Okay, you can look at that article. That's right there. We're going to shift now to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. I guess I should say this, a couple more announcements. I, I haven't said this in a while, so there's a lot of new people at the church. If you choose to sit downstairs, of course, we have that down there. Make sure when you're downstairs, and this is going to sound mean, but oh well, here goes. Please pay attention. I know a lot of people like to go down there and play on their phones and talk and eat the donuts. And I'm not being cheeky. I, I'm, what I'm saying is there's some people down there because they need to be down there. And they want to hear the Word of God. So don't make that a play area. That's not being smart, Eliki. I'm just shooting straight from the heart. Love the Lord down there, love each other, but be respectful and uh, listen if you could, okay? Is that, is that too mean? Okay, good. All right, okay, fantastic. And the final thing is, you know, a lot of new people come to the church, and that's, that's great and wonderful. And if you want to get plugged in, there's lots of ways you could get plugged in. You could help with the setup of the church, the cleanup of the church. You could be a greeter. You could uh, help with the cleaning staff. Uh, and there's a lot of other things. You could go down on Mondays and help with the homeless. Mark needs a lot of help. He really does with the blessing store. We have a warehouse that we rent out down here where we hold uh, clothes and items and couches and tables and lots of other things. And the Lord blessed us uh, last month with a van that's like a moving van. So now Mark gets lots of calls, but he can't move everything into the van himself. So if you're interested in helping him uh, uh, see him, okay? So lots of things going on. Uh, right here in the city. Oh, you, you also uh, support a, a mission to the refugees here in Pittsburgh. And so you're impacting the world for Christ, uh, and you haven't even left uh, Pittsburgh. So awesome stuff, right? Awesome stuff. Amen is right. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Some call this the sarcastic chapter. I guess it's why I love it so much. <laughs> because it seems as if Paul here in some ways, as being sarcastic. This certainly is the Word of God and inspired, and yet I love this chapter because Paul gets real. Because there's a whole bunch of people that are trying to creep into the church at Corinth who are criticizing Paul in big ways. And in chapters 10 through the rest of the book, he addresses those folks point on or straight on. And here it does seem like he's sarcastic in some ways and uh, pretty interesting. He gets real. And the people that are criticizing him are probably people, you can deduce it from what he's saying, not because he calls them out by name, but you can deduce, him, deduce what they're saying by what he's answering, if that makes any sense, by what he addresses in this letter. And so you'll see it. There's a problem here with false teaching teaching that's not uh, uh, from the Lord Jesus, but it's an add-on or it's a subtraction of what is in the gospel. It's grace plus something, not grace. 
It is grace, but it's grace plus or grace but. And here, Paul addresses them. And it seems that they've been ultra critical of Paul, which would be really amazing because Paul himself, as the Lord has called him, has basically, him and his ministry team and some others, Peter and others, have gone around the ancient world, the Mediterranean area, and have started several churches and begun several churches. If anyone would have a right to brag in the Christian life, it's Paul. And he does sort of, you might think, in this chapter, boast. But I think if you read it and understand it and know it, that he's, there are people coming at him to really try to undercut him and try to undercut the message of the gospel, then this sort of will make sense. How to deal with critics. That's what we've been dealing with for uh, a couple chapters now, and it continues on. And when you read and pick out uh, and see the things that Paul addresses, man, it sure blesses your heart. How to stand firm when people misunderstand you. Don't you love it when people misunderstand you? When you're living for the Lord and trying to do what the Lord wants and walk in his will and do the righteous things that he's called you to do, and then people misunderstand you and certainly talk behind your back and try to get you and undermine you. Oh, isn't that fun? No, it's not fun. And yet Paul here gives us a blueprint of how to navigate those waters. Here it is. Verse 1. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I might present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Now let's think about this. He says, (laughs) bear with me in a little folly. It's not that what he's saying is unimportant or silly or not inspired or anything like that. But what he's going to do here, and he acknowledges right now, is you're criticizing me. And I understand you're criticizing me. And I've seen the impact and the hurt and the destruction it's caused. So here's what I'm going to do, Paul says. I'm going to come down to your level. I'm going to engage in folly. So watch out. No, not watch out. But here, I'm coming down to your level that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed, you do bear with me. Listen. And the first thing that Paul chooses to tell the people in Corinth who are being swayed by the critics is something really, really important for your life. In fact, I think I'm going to write a song about it. And it's this. I am jealous for you. Ever heard that song? (laughs) Well, okay, it wasn't that funny, but it is a hit song from about 10 years ago. For I am jealous for you, but not just jealous in any way. I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. And then he goes on and he describes his relationship with the church in Corinth as one that's sort of a marriage relationship. Oh, not that he's doing the marrying, but he's taking the uh, congregation, the fellowship in Corinth, and he's bringing it 
to the groom. He's taking the bride or bringing the bride to the groom. You see that? And so we know that, of course, isn't it? I mean, the marriage relationship is so intimate and beautiful and is calling all throughout the relationship the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the marriage is all about. Paul calls it in Ephesians the great mysterion. It's mysterious and deep. That's the marriage relationship. He says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin. I want to bring you spotless and unblemished and present you to your bride or your groom, Jesus. But he starts with this, and I think we should know it. I'm jealous for you with godly jealousy. And we spoke about this a little bit. One of the great characteristics of the God that we serve and praise the Lord for this attribute. He's jealous for his people. Now notice I didn't say, and neither does it say here, that he's jealous of his people. You know the bad jealousy. You just go home and you watch it on TV and somebody in a domestic dispute gets jealous about something and somebody gets hurt. And that sort of jealousy is brutal and awful and terrible and there's no place for it. But you see, these types of jealousies you can describe this way. We talked about it a little bit last week. There's this jealousy that's all about the self-life or about you. That's the bad jealousy. But then the jealousy of God is for others. There's a jealousy that's good. I mean, I got to tell you, I don't really want anyone to date my wife. And that's a good jealousy. There's no place for that, right? And there's a good jealousy. And that's not looking out for me necessarily, but looking out what's best for her and for the marriage and for us and what God has set. And it says here, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. Now, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I say this all the time, but I'm a reader. And Alan Redpath comments on what this is, this jealousy. Oh, I'm in chapter four. That ain't going to do it. And here it is. He says this. What is the jealousy of God? Uh, Alan Redpath comments. And so he answers the question by first reminding you of the character of God revealed to us in his book. First of all, Redpath says, what does the Bible say about the character of God? It's always been the belief of non-Christian religions that their gods are jealous and must be appeased by a sacrifice. But this isn't our God. The Bible reveals that our God is essentially moral and just, essentially pure and holy, and his jealousy, listen to this, I wish I would have written this, which is the greatest flame that burns in the heart of deity is the flame of love and action. His jealousy is a concern, ready for this? It's a concern for the purity the holiness, the greatness, the glory of his people. His concern, and you need only refer to your Bible and you'll see it, 
is to call out a particular people unto himself who will be his witnesses and whose lives will demonstrate his beauty to the world. That's a consuming flame burning eternally in his heart, the flame of love and action. Later he goes on and he says this, God's jealousy, therefore, is a concern for the holiness, integrity, purity of ethics, and Christian standards for his people. Be- now, they got to really, he speaks a little different here. Because of this, God will refuse to brook a rival, connect a rival in our affections for him, not because of a selfish greed which wishes us all for his own possession, but simply because he knows that his great purpose for us of purity and holiness of life depends upon our personal surrender and submission to his purpose and because God would make it known that happiness without holiness is impossible. I know that's long to read, but man, is that powerful. When you get a hold of the jealousy of God for you, it changes everything. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for our fellowship and the fellowship, all fellowships that are teaching the gospel, Holy Spirit-filled fellowships that are bringing up in the Lord men and women, boys and girls, and connecting them to Jesus, pointing them to Jesus. He's jealous for his people, and that's a good thing. It's for our good and for his glory. It's the safest and best and most amazing place to be under the shadow of the wings of the Lord because he is jealous for his people. You see, I think a lot of times we think God is sort of just this blob in the sky sort of thing, this entity is sort of just floats around is an imp- and is impersonal with us. Here, Paul lays out that God's jealous for his people. And oh, by the way, when you become a Christian and you get a new nature, you're a new creation, you now, according to the book of Peter, are armed... And by the way, I was telling the leaders of the women's study this, you're now armed with the mind of Christ. And that word armed is like a weapon. You get a weapon, and one of the weapons that you traverse or travel this world is the mind of Christ. What do you mean? You start to think like him and see things through the lens of Jesus and how he sees. And one of the things that you do as you disciple people, that we do here, as we disciple people, is that we become jealous for God's people. And that's a good thing. Now, we're not jealous. If the Lord says, oh, listen, you know, people come and they say, you know, the Lord's just taking me on and there's this fellowship and I've been, we say, oh, praise the Lord, man, you're growing in the Lord. Great. Not that jealousy. If the Lord's calling somebody to another place, we're not we're not jealous of the church up the street with eight thousand people and they have great you know women women's groups and men's groups and fellowship and their youth. We're we're not jealous that way. That's not that jealousy. What we're jealous for, what Paul's jealous for, is that error creeps in the church and ravage its people. 
We're jealous in the way that God is, that you would be protected and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're jealous in the sense that we want to make sure in the right way, not the creepy, unspiritual way, but we want to be jealous for you in seeing you growing in Christ, serving and loving and worshiping and praying and growing in every way that he calls you to, you know, to grow. That's the jealousy. It's a jealousy that looks out for the good of the other, not to satisfy the one who's jealous, but looks out for the good of the other. And here he says, I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, jealousy, for I want you to know I've betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And you know this, that they would have these families and they would come together and the young lady and the young man from the family before they got married would be betrothed. And that was as good as the marriage being consummated. It would take a year of betrothal and then the the, the wedding. And we've gone through that on several occasions. But the point is, you haven't realized the fullness of everything yet because Jesus is going to come back and put everything right. And then he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. And you're going to be a part of that millennial reign. And then the new, uh, the new Jerusalem's going to come and we're going to live and reign there. But the point is, you're betrothed. You're as good as it's a done deal. You understand what I mean? And that's what he says. And that's what we're to do as we are jealous for other people spiritually in the right way, not the creepy way. Why do I keep saying the creepy way? Because there was this weird thing that was going through the church several years ago, you know, the shepherding movement, where the shepherds were telling people, now, before you get married, you need to come and ask us. That's weird. It's not right. It's not appropriate. Before you take a new job, you need to come see us. No, 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 no. That's inappropriate. Not right. But there is a jealousy that the leaders of the church do have for you and want to see All that uh, uh, God has for you comes to fruition as far as they can help it. And that's what Paul's saying here. Because he has brought you, we want to bring you to Jesus. To Jesus. The groom who can put all things right and has all the answers and is tender and truthful and loving and best for you. That's the jealousy that's appropriate. But I fear, Paul writes in verse 3, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. As the serpent deceived Eve by your craftiness. Now you know that there's a crafty serpent. He's the enemy of our souls. You could go back in Genesis chapter 3. You could see and uh, read about him and uh, see uh, how he participated in and uh, brought about uh, uh, a deception on Adam and Eve and had them uh, take the bait, so to speak, and then they made a decision to rebel and the fall of man. And how did they do it? I mean, how did the crafty serpent do it? Well, the crafty serpent did it by knowing the word of God and twisting it somehow. It sounded real religious. It sounded good. In fact, he even quoted some scripture sometimes uh, with 
them in the garden, or more appropriately, he quoted scripture when he tempted Jesus up on the temple. But the first thing he said is, come on now, come on. What does the enemy, the crafty serpent, want all of you to be? Every single one of you. And oh, by the way, if you're in Christ and you're part of the church, I just got to tell you, just, I don't want to wig you out, but this is true. You have a great big target on your back. And the enemy of our souls wants you to become this word just like he wanted Adam and Eve to become. And what's that? Dissatisfied. He wants you to think that God's not out for your best. Did God really say that? Come on. Did God really say that? He wouldn't do that. He wants you to do this thing and that thing. And he wants you to have everything that you deserve. God wouldn't say that. In fact, listen to me. You should just do this, this, and this, and your life will be fulfilled. He's doing the same thing to you and I. That's what he does in a target. He doesn't shoot you with a pitchfork. He shoots fiery darts into your mind. That's where the battle's raged. And the number one thing he wants you to do is to be dissatisfied. Right? So now translate that to your life. Has God brought a man or a woman? And all you've thought about your whole life is marriage. And you've said to yourself, my goodness, I'm really dissatisfied, Lord, that you haven't brought her or him. Ooh, be careful. Is it a good thing to be married? Sure, the Bible says it. It's a good thing to be single? Uh-huh, it's great to be single. But you've got to watch being dissatisfied. And then, you know, that subtleness where your dissatisfaction is transferred to the Lord, and basically what you're thinking and feeling is, Lord, you have no idea what you're doing. You've let me down. That was the strategy from the beginning. Because he is a crafty serpent. By the way, he's also called a roaring lion in the Bible. <laughs> what do lions do? They wait in the weeds and they see the prey get off by themselves, make a little mistake, and bang! They grab him. What else is the enemy of our souls described as? And Well, he's an angel of light. <laughs> He doesn't come as, you know, Linda Blair in the 70s movie. He comes in subtle ways. He shoots them fiery darts or those fiery darts right into your mind. And they're constant. And you must and we must have the shield of faith. What else is the enemy of our souls? Well, he's out for murder. This is no game. This isn't funny. He's out for murder, and he'll do anything. He'll lie to you like this. You don't matter. That's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And I know those things have come into some of our minds sometimes, but you do matter. You matter so much that God sent his only son to die in your place. That's how much you matter. These things are lies, and he'll do it. He's a liar and a murderer and a stealer and a thief, and he's an imitator. He imitates God because he knows if he can get you off track, just a few percentage points. Like my pastor used to say he used to be a wallpaper hanger, and he'd get up that side, and he did, he'd think he was okay, and he'd miss by just a little bit, and he'd get down to this side, and he'd be this far off. 
Because the enemy wants you to get just a little bit off. That's why it's so important that you know the word so that you can recognize what's inappropriate and what's not, what's wrong and false. Because Paul was dealing with it here. And he says, I want to present you as a chaste version, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, bless you, so your, look where the war is waged, your minds may be corrupted, and here it comes, from the simplicity that is in Christ. Boy, what an a interesting phrase. That word simplicity in the Greek, Greek, what did I say? In the Greek, it's a strange word. It's like single braided, braid. And it's come to be known and, and used in the Greek as just single-mindedness. But I find it fascinating that it's single braided. Like there's one thing that's to be woven all throughout your life, the whole purpose of your life, the whole mission of your life, the, everything that you are and are about, and that's Jesus is woven, one string, one braid, one thing we, is woven throughout your whole life. It's what's at the core. It's Jesus Christ. There's this simplicity that is in Christ. Now, that's interesting Simplicity, one single-minded. Jesus was very simplistic. I mean, he's profound, but his life here on earth was very simplistic. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. I mean, he had no place to lay his head. He didn't worry about the material things. The Lord provided. Remember when he got lost at the temple when he was 12 years old? He knew it. He goes, Mom, Dad, I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that we got separated, but my business is to do the business of my dad, my father. He was in the temple area, and he was telling his mom and dad that he had the father, or God as the father of him. And his business, his whole life was to be about his father's business. And here he is. He doesn't have many material things. He doesn't have a house or anything like that. He doesn't even go down and secure at the funeral home his burial plans. No, he just has somebody sort of lend that to him, a burial, a rich guy. And his whole life, wherever he was going, whatever he was doing, if he was at a party, the conversation somehow, some way, I'm, I'm putting quotes around that, it was on purpose, would always come back to the father's business. If he was traveling through a country and he met, you know, somebody who had leprosy or blind and he was asked to heal them, yeah, that was great. The healing was great. Great for healing. Who doesn't like healings? Yes, but the conversation then would always come back to something about the Father. His miracles, you read them and you always see that his Father was glorified in the miracles. I'm afraid sometimes now in the modern church, when people do miracles, the people who are doing the miracles steal the glory. Not him. There's this simplicity that was found in Christ and also for us who are found in Christ, there is to be a simplicity of life. You, you get this? What are we to do every single day? day? <laughs> Man, no sleep last night. I just 
said day twice real fast and don't know why I said that. <laughs> it was a little twitch, I guess. <laughs> Every single day, what are we to do? We are to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. What are we to be about? Christ tells us through the scriptures by Paul, we're to be people who are ministers of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means we're trying not trying, we're uh, working uh, in this way. We're trying to bring the hand of man and the hand of God together, but we're not the high priest who does that. We point people to the great high priest, Jesus. So everything we are is simple. I don't care what you do. I don't know what you do. Maybe there's a police officer in here. Maybe there's a, 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 an executive here. Maybe there's a mom who uh, works the hardest job and raises the children and runs them around and does all that, or maybe dad here or, or whatever. I, I don't know, but whatever you are, I don't know. Just go right up and down the road, whatever you are. Well, first of all, here's what you are. You're a follower of Christ, but whatever the Lord has chosen to do, give you to do as work or extra cricket or whatever, it's simple. And if people tell you differently, they're wrong. The simplicity is this. Just bring people and show them Jesus. You don't have to dance around and make all these unbelievable arguments. Yes, it's good to study the scriptures and know them and be able to give a defense and rightly divide the word. But here, you just bring people to Jesus and you say, whoa, he saved me from my sins and look what he's done in my life and he could do it for you. That's it. And if you don't know why, you know, if the first people had belly buttons or not, well, that's okay. Go look it up later. Just bring people to Jesus. You see, there's one thing that's woven through your life wherever you go, whatever you do. Be ministers of reconciliation. That's what you're called to be. It's real easy. Yes, the gospel is simple, folks, but it's profound. I mean, Jesus told us in his word that children can understand the gospel. We have a sin problem, and there's somebody, Jesus, who died in our place for our sins. And he didn't stay dead, he rose again. And so he accomplished everything, all the provision for you to be reconciled back to the Father. Now that's pretty simple, except for all that's combined in there is really profound. And it's not cheap. It cost him his life. But simple. And why do you think Paul's writing this? Because there were these people that were coming around behind the simplicity of the gospel and making it complex. And he was jealous about that. He did not like it. Why did he not like it? Because it was upsetting Paul's ministry? No, because it was dissuading people from the true gospel, the simplicity of the gospel that saves people. That's why he was mad. You say, well, come on, that doesn't apply to us. Really? Hey, I got something from this little cute little magazine that has a book that's changed every year for the last, you know, 50 years. And I want to tell you about it. It's about Jesus. And we're all about grace. 
You say, oh, who are you from? Well, we don't want to be called that name anymore. We want to be called something close, more closely associated with Jesus. But basically, it's Jehovah's Witness. And what they teach is not what's in the Bible. And if you listen to it and go down that road, the sad part about it is you won't be saved. And (laughs) it's sad. And there's some well-intentioned people, I believe, in the movement, and yet they're deceived. And the enemy has taken them like the wallpaper and started to just get them off track just a little bit. And by the time they got down here, it's the difference between heaven and hell. There are other groups that come to your house. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Folks, they don't teach the Jesus of the Bible. So it's relevant for our day. And Paul feared that the serpent, like with Eve, would deceive. And your minds may be corrupted from this just this simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. If people are bringing to you something that's complex and hard to understand, so to speak, not that it's not profound, and they, they're, they're uh, uh, in the minutia of all the things all the time, and they're not getting to the heart of the matter, and they're always just studying about the minutia and the things on the periphery, well, watch out. I mean, be careful. <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> This is beautiful, because I don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed. Jesus just made it simple. Just made it simple. You know, some people say it's such a narrow way of thinking. It's not very broad-minded. Man, if you had a kindergartner, and you taught them all 70 ways to tie their shoes... I mean, he's the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except by the Son. I think that's one of the most empathetic, compassionate, beautiful, helpful verses of the Bible because... He didn't give you 70 ways, always thinking, is this one of the ways? Is that one of the ways? Can I tie this? No, he just said, here, one way. Easy. Not easy. That's a bad way of saying it. It's so beautiful. Oh, by the way, what does one of the ministries, if you can call it that, one of the targets, one of the weapons of the enemy? Well, he blinds the eyes of those who don't see that simplicity. Well, he's fearful that the enemy would deceive. Watch this, verse 4. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. And he doesn't want people to put up with those things. He wants you to know the distinctions. That's why Paul 
is jealous. He loves his people. He loves those that are at the church. And he wants to tell them the truth so that they don't go down the wrong spiritual alley and end up in hell. He goes on, he says, For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. And here many people see sarcasm. It starts to speak my love language. I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. In other words, he's saying, these super apostles who've been coming behind what I've been preaching, I'm not inferior to them. Now, he had to get on their level. He doesn't like doing it. He's not bragging. He's trying to get a point across. He'll do anything for their safety and their care and their love. You get it? He's not bragging. He just is willing to do anything. I'm untrained in speech. In fact, if you look back in 2 Corinthians 10, just one chapter back, he says that his speech was contemptible. He couldn't give great speeches. He wasn't a great orator. He was not much to look at, we know from extra-biblical sources. He had some sort of medical malady that haunted him or was after him his whole life. He prayed about it to the Lord three times to let it go, and it wouldn't go. And he he was nothing much to look at. His speech was contemptible. And what's fascinating about this was he was really highly educated. At least in the law, he was trained by the greatest rabbi, and he must not have, though, been this great orator. It wasn't his strength. And he admits it. Isn't that interesting? That this man who had been all around the world sharing and loving and pouring into people admits that he wasn't that great of a speaker. Boy, that's humble. Even though I'm untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. Yet I am not in knowledge. Remember, he was trained in the things of the Jewish law. He was on his the road to Syria, Damascus. This is the story of Paul in Acts chapter 9, if you don't know it, but you should know it. And here's what. You see in that story, jealousy, inappropriate, turned to jealousy, jealousy, appropriate. Here he is hearing about a group of these people who've sort of branched off from the Jewish faith to start this thing called the way. And they were spreading these the gospel talking about Jesus, and he was marching up there in jealousy to kill him. And the Lord appears to him, and his whole life is changed, and he surrenders his life to Jesus, and his jealousy, inappropriate, is turned to jealousy, appropriate for other people and for the care of the simplicity of the gospel. Isn't that wild? You see it right here in his life. He knows all about it. And then Jesus took him and took him out into the desert and taught him for several years, two or three years, received right from Jesus the gospel and was trained up. And that's where the Lord really trained him for these letters and such. And yet, I know I can't speak that much, but I do have a solid knowledge base, he says, but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. You, you see the jealousy that pours out? Manifested in all things. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, if you don't like the way I speak, know that I've been trained, and, and, and I've been trained by Jesus. But look, watch this. But really, watch what I do among you. 
I, I don't stay up on some high perch or a throne, Paul says. I don't wear all this unbelievable garb and hats and swing things and make you kiss my ring. That's not what Paul does. Paul says, I get right down there with the people, and I love you, and I come over when somebody dies, and, or if you're sick, I come over, and, and I love on you, and that's what our ministry team is trained to do. He says, we've been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. That's the way you can see how authentic this is, that the Lord has really changed a person. You get it? And he goes on. He said, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? You might think that's a really funny verse, but the reason he's saying that is because the false teachers were saying, what are you doing, Paul? You're the pastor, man. You get the reserved spot parking out front. You get the throne on the altar the, up on the stage so people will look at you and you could talk down. What are you doing? This was a great thing to the false teachers and the Greeks. Weakness was bad. What are you doing being among the people? You should be exalted. He says, did I commit sin in doing that because I preached the gospel of God to, to you free of charge? What's he talking about here? He, talk, he discussed this in 1 Corinthians 9. There's nothing wrong with the pastor or the ministry staff or whatever uh, uh, obtaining uh, you know, wages or, or receiving a salary. But Paul said, you know, something the Lord spoke to me was when I came to Corinth, I shouldn't take money. Because I don't want to really stumble you in anything. In fact, I'll work as a tent maker, my own thing that I do, tent making. And I want to do that, Paul said, because I don't want you to be stumbled. Like, wow, he's preaching again on giving. Is it really for the church or is it for him? That's what Paul was saying here. And he said, no, I pre preach this gospel free of charge. I robbed other churches taking wages from them to minister to you. And what he's saying there is other churches supported me. And he's sort of being sarcastic. So here, I preached the gospel, I robbed other churches, took wage from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. You can't say that I did this for money. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Achaia was southern Greece. That's where Corinth was. It was the capital province of the Roman area, even though it was in Greece. Why? Because I do not love you? No, that's not why. God knows. But what I do, I will also continue it to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which we boast. For such are false apostles. Watch this. Folks, you need to know, and I need to know, and we need to know together. There are people in the church who teach false things, and they're false apostles, and some of them are on TV, although, listen, there are some good pastors on TV. But some of them never reach the TV and are teaching false things. And they were there in Paul's time, and they're there in our time. And here's some of the characteristics. And you can look at their characteristics in a lot of places in the New Testament. But here's some. They're deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Now, why would he say that? 
Because the ones who are teachers, people recognize it in them and then ask them to teach based on what God is already doing in them. Are you, listen to what I'm saying. These people said, I want to be a teacher and I'm going to do anything to be a teacher. Even if I'm not called. Because I want to deceive people. Transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also... Look, he calls them his ministers, folks. The false teachers. Transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. You're like, well, just blow by that verse. Well, don't blow by that verse. God is perfectly just and fair, even to the false apostles or teachers. You know what he says? We're going to do this fairly. Okay. You didn't teach the gospel. Here's what we'll do. We're going to evaluate you based on your own works or righteousness. And if you look at the great white throne judgment, which I want none of you to be at, that's what the Lord does. He evaluates people based on their own works. That's why the gospel is so beautiful. (laughs) Jesus paid it all and imputes into our spiritual bank account the righteousness of God. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) That's the best thing. It's the greatest thing. It's the most liberating doctrine. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus imputes to you based on... Or, yeah, imputes to you the righteousness of God because of his finished work at the cross and his resurrection. We get his righteousness. So that when we meet the Father, the Father can say, oh, perfection. And you go, wait a minute, Lord, I'm not really perfect. He goes, yes, but you have the righteousness of God through Jesus. So beautiful. It's why you sing. It's why you worship him. It's why you get up and want to spend time with him. Well, here it is. I say again to you, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. Some more reluctant boasting. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord. Is that pretty honest? (laughs) Can you believe the Apostle Paul says this? He says, I'm coming right down to your level. The level of the false apostles. Because you guys, it's like he's taking them by the spiritual lapels and says, really, listen to this. So, I speak not according to the Lord, but as if it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh. There's another characteristic of the false teachers. I'm going to get in trouble for this. I know it. You know something I just, this is just me. You're going to get mad at me. Man, just don't put your name on the website. It ain't your ministry. It's not my ministry. What if I had here at Calvary Chapel Tim Green Ministries? What would you think? I know I'm going to hurt people's feelings there. You're going to come up and give me examples, but I just can't bear to do it. It's his ministry. He's just working through what Beck said, broken people who he's taking their feet out of the miry clay and set their feet upon the rock, and that's who we are. I don't want to boast according to the flesh. 
I want you to be magnified, Lord. We want you to be magnified, not us, for you put up with foods, fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. For you put up with fools gladly. You you would put up with this abuse from the false teachers. Remember what Paul said just a few uh, times ago. He said, this is so wonderful. You know what the ministers of God are supposed to be doing? Helpers of your joy. Now, sometimes you got to talk to the sheep and just be honest with them. But that helps your joy. If you keep moving in this direction, man, you're in trouble. You shouldn't do that. But here he says, man, you're willing to listen to these deceitful people who are in it for themselves, who want to prop themselves up in, in the flesh. You'll put up with things like bondage. I mean, you'll go right back into bondage. Come to me and ask me who you have to marry. If one devours you, if one takes from you, takes money from you. If one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, you could actually look back at Acts 23. Paul was struck on the face one time. To our shame, I say that we were, we were too weak for that. Are you catching that? He's like, man, these eminent super apostles, they would do anything to exalt themselves, including this abuse. Well, I'm just telling you, we weren't like that. We're too weak for that. There's no way we would do that. That's what Paul's saying. No way we would do that. But in whatever, anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. I got to tell it to you straight. Now watch. Here it comes. Are they Hebrews? Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he was Hebrew through and through. He also lived in Tarsus, so it made him a Roman citizen, but that's for another day. So am I. Are you Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. You see, he's giving his credentials. Are they ministers of Christ, servants of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. He just has to say it. Watch this. In labors more abundant. I worked harder than anyone, he has to say. In stripes above measure. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. One of the punishments under the law was to get 40 lashes, like a scourging. And the rabbis had this tradition where they would only give 39 to show mercy. Yeah, some mercy. If you read the accounts of what they did, a guy would stoop down on the ground. First of all, I can't do that because I'm so inflexible. But he would stoop down on the ground, they'd rip open his shirt, they'd tie his hands around something, and then they'd lash him (laughs) 39 times. You can find uh, that punishment in Deuteronomy. But anyway, I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Can you imagine receiving a caning, some hard rod, just being beat over the head, the back, and the legs? Oh, my. Once I was stoned not the modern kind, with real stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day. I've been in the deep. Can you imagine being in a shipwreck and then just getting back up and going back on the ship again? Oh, yuck. 
in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robber, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city. Is it, can you believe this? In perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for the church. And there's the punchline. In 2 Corinthians 4, I believe, I think it's 2 Corinthians, it's in chapter 4, he calls all these things that he just described, you know what he calls them? Momentary light afflictions. (laughs) Can you imagine if one of those happened to one of us? We'd be out. Shot out. He calls them momentary light affliction. You know, Jesus sort of talked about this in the book of John. (laughs) He said that there's people that are over the sheep. One's a hireling, one's a shepherd. And the hireling, he does stuff with the sheep and for the sheep because he's getting paid. (laughs) And you know, when the trouble comes, like a wolf or something, it's like, too bad, you're on your own. That's the hireling. There's another one that takes care. It's the shepherd. The shepherd's in it for the love. He loves the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He nurtures the sheep. He Uh, you know, puts ointment on the sheep and he watches out for them and he goes sleepless for them and he protects them. You know it. And when the bad times come, like the wolves and things, he gets them out. He sticks in there with them. Jesus said it, right? Paul here is describing himself as a shepherd. This is what the people of God are, folks. When you Surrender your life to Jesus Christ and all that he has for you. He's paid the penalty for your sins. He's defeated death. He's risen again. And now you have new life in Christ. Guess what? The Holy Spirit of God comes into your life and it changes your values and your priorities. And the enemy of our soul wants to get you back to the worldly priorities. So what is he going to do to you? He's going to make you ultra busy He's going to be, make you so preoccupied with sports or music or movies or blah, 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 that you're going to have no time for the Lord. He's not going to come at you with pitchforks and red horns and spin his head around. He's going to come with you with the busyness of life and the things that you deserve, and you're going to get completely off track. That's his strategy. And what Paul's saying here is a born-again, spirit-filled Christian, their priorities change. There's nothing going to stop them from being part of the church, from being part of the born-again believers, from being part of the fellowship. Nothing. Every time he would sleep, wherever he was sleeping, When his feet would hit the floor, here's what he'd think. Oh, man, what the Lord has done for me, I want others to know. And then we're going to get them in churches and fellowships, and we're going to disciple them, and they're going to go out, and they're going to know the same Jesus. And every waking minute, no matter if he was sewing a tent or cutting up a tent, the pieces for the tent or whatever, this was what was on his heart. 
And you say, well, that's Paul. But here's the thing. That's normal, authentic Christianity for everybody. That's what it is. I want you to see something here. It's a crushing sentence. Besides those things that happened to me, Paul says, this sentence right here, what comes upon me daily. You know what that's saying right there? I was stressed and I worried and I was anxious, but not in here for me. It was for the people. And I was concerned about them, and I wanted them to do well, and I wanted them to go down the right path. And these are the things that dominated my life, even while I was working. These are the things that I thought about all the time. It changed my life. He changed my life. My deep concern was for all the churches, not just the one he attended, but all the ones that were preaching the gospel. That's authentic Christianity. Folks, if you're coming here and you're not serving here, come on serve. Not because I'm the pastor and I need help. It's for your own benefit. It's what you should be doing. Pray to the Lord for your own ministry. Get equipped and then go out and do it. Go do it. Here he goes. I'll I'll finish. Maybe. If I must boast, I'll boast in the things which concern my infirmity. And there he comes back to reality. He says, man, I hated doing this, but it had to be said. And the thing that I really want to boast in is just my weakness. In other words, I just need Jesus all the time. I know I'm weak. I know I'm prideful. I know I have a tendency to get off track. I know I'm prone to wander. I know I'm fickle. But it's not based on me. It's based on him, and I just need him. And so here he just says, Back to reality, I need him. And then it says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Do you see this, folks? People pleasers, raise your hand. Oh, come on. There's like four of you out there. I'm people pleaser. I want you to see this. What mattered is if Jesus knew. What, excuse me, what mattered is if God knew what he was doing not what people said what he was doing. He wasn't catering to the, the, the rumors and the gossip that was coming his way. He just wanted to set it straight with the people that he was building up in Christ. Do you get it? You keep talking. I don't care. I'm going to focus on the people. I just don't want you to get off track. Isn't that beautiful? You see his heart? That's the heart of a pastor, of a shepherd, of you who's discipling other people. And then he goes and says this, in Damascus, the governor uh, under Aretas, the king, was guarding the city of Damascenes with the garrisons, desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. And you can read about that. This is so amazing. The Bible is so amazing. Here's this highfalutin, highly educated, very rich, big-time image, had number, most followers on Instagram, uh, rabbi right here. And he's walking to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he's going to give it to him. He's going to kill the Christians. And he has this encounter with the Lord, and listen, by the end of Acts chapter 9, he's escaping out of a window in a little basket. What he's saying was... I'll do anything for the church. 
Don't let my pride, my image, I won't let my power, any of that stuff that means nothing. I just want people to know him, one and only Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you, and what a powerful chapter, Lord. And uh, we uh, just pray, Lord, that (laughs) you tell us that we have this mind in us. Arm ourselves with these things. Lord, thank you that you're jealous for us. Thank you that the gospel is simple. Thank you you call us to a simple life. Thank you that you make us strong when we're weak. Help us, Lord, not to be so prideful that if people saw us being let down in a basket through a window, we'd be ashamed or embarrassed. But Lord, that we would just be pointing people to you. That's what we would do. We'd go to any lengths for the churches and for the gospel. Help us in that regard. In Jesus' name, amen.